That was awesome. No, it really was. <laughs> who, who this week assumed something and you were way off? Who was pleasantly surprised by something you expected? But it was better. Alright. How many of that was with yourself? <laughs> I was surprised I handled that as howeverly as I did. You can let you go positive or negative there. Assumptions, expectations. I think that's what I saw. That is what I saw and understood in our text today. And I'm honored and excited to be able to share it with you. Let me pray. God, it is um, it's an expectation that as we sang, as we spoke, that you are here, you are amidst all of us, and you're always there. No matter where we are, you are there. And God, there's also an expectation that you will show up, that you will speak through your word, through words that, that I shared and meditated on. And, and God, my heart is that, that in that, you might hide me despite using maybe story in my life, and just allow us to all draw close to you, God, to expect more of you, to assume less, of the world, and really just to be closer to you as we this holy week. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, assumption, an assumption is simply this. It's, it's taking something for granted. That's one of the definitions. You know, most of the definitions have the word assume in it, and you're like, thanks. Appreciate that, Roger, Webster, whoever you are. Taking for granted. And, and an expectation is something that's a high probability of occurrence. It's most likely going to happen, right? We expect it. It's, it should happen. I kind of look at it as assumptions are the past, where something we expect has been done, and expectations are something we expect to happen, right? Well, let's just rock with that for, for now as we talk about that. I mean, some assumptions, assumptions actually we should, we should have. There's some expectations that we should have. <clears throat> When someone gives you a vaccine, you assume that needle's never been used before. That's a fair assumption. When someone sees a red light, you expect them, the other driver, to stop, right? I mean, if, if we didn't, then we would be walking, you know, driving around life very apprehensive. But there's certain things we assume and certain things we, we expect. So one of the things, like the Bible, assumes, and it tells us right off the bat, God is. In the beginning, it was God. Boom. A lot of people will be like, well, I'm going to argue the Bible with atheists. It doesn't work. If you don't believe there's a God, the whole premise of the Bible is there is a God. So you're arguing with something that, don't even, that you can't even start, and it's the first verse of the whole thing. We assume there is a God. We expect, based on that, Word of God, Jesus to return. We assume there was a resurrection. First Corinthians 15 says if there wasn't, then this whole thing is foolishness. We, ex we assume there's a resurrection, and we expect God to show up in our daily lives. At least we should. We should. 
And I think that's what we find is we recall this Holy Week, right? We got Palm Sunday, some, some talk about Monday, Thursday, or like Monday, Thursday, what did I know? It's a church tradition. Then we've got Good Friday, which I always, always miss up. I mess up Good Friday and Black Friday. I don't know about you, but I always do that. And I'm like, oh, it's Good Friday, all the deals. No, 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 no. it's not that way. <laughs> like, it's Black Friday this week because Jesus died. Like, that's, that's bad. But what is... Um, what, what the challenge is is sometimes we assume or expect what's going to happen in the story. We've lived our life before. We're familiar with the word. We're familiar with Palm Sunday and Easter, maybe. It, because we know the end of the story. We, put our, we need to, though, put ourselves in the situation that the people we're in that we're reading about. And try and understand their assumptions and their expectations. Because when we do, whoa, whoa. So what's Palm Sunday anyway? We're going to look at one text today, but in a nutshell, the people of Israel, they, they, they gathered once a year, right, because of an event called Passover, talked about. And it's an event that dates back over a thousand years before then when God's Spirit performed these plagues in Egypt, right? So there's ten plagues. The tenth plague is one where all the firstborn children could die. And you're like, that's horrible. It is horrible. Pharaoh didn't get it on the first nine. And those were dramatic. And so God brought about this one, and he said to my people of Israel who were enslaved by these Egyptians, I'm going to, um, I'm going to pass over you if you take blood and you put it on the doorposts and the, and the you know, the door, your doorposts. And I'm going to, it says in Exodus 12, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry, Exodus 12, 13, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. I think there's a, is that passage up there? No, did I put that there? I just like to put passages up there, as you know, so the people in the back can't see it. <laughs> so they sit closer. Uh, it's okay, it's not there. Uh, Exodus 12, 13. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So that's the event that this whole Passover is about. What's amazing is you have this act of smearing blood on door frames. You're like, that's really gross. Really gross. But the process of, of really, that, that was a pretty common thing in the Old Testament. And, and especially what follows after in Exodus. And so you have this, this smearing. And the smearing actually, when you go to like um, make a sacrifice or you... You take blood, which was big in the Old Testament, or even you just anoint somebody with like oil. That word anoint is Mashiach. That's right. I was coughing. Now I feel a lot better after saying that word. <laughs> it's Messiah. It's the word Messiah. It means to anoint. And so Jesus is coming and he's this Messiah we know, but they're expecting a Messiah who's going to come as the anointed one. Thank you. I just spoke Hebrew, so I'm good. Thanks. <laughs> So the anointed one, and, and what's fascinating is that with this story that, we're, that was read earlier, right before it is a section where this woman, some might call her crazy, she was literally, Jesus healed her from evil spirits, this woman Mary actually takes perfume, and we've got that one, I think, John 12, 3, it says that Mary took a, pure, a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. 
And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. She anointed Jesus. She anointed, just like the blood, you know, was anointing the doorposts. And her story is one of, one of the few stories told in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In fact, Jesus' birth wasn't even told in all four, and hers was. Powerful. And I think it's most powerful because... Wait for it. <laughs> it's most powerful because here's this woman who anointed the anointed one, right. the Messiah, who anointed you and I through his own blood. Yeah. Whoa. Mm -hmm. Whoa. The Mashiach, the, the one who smeared, is... The action of smearing and a noun is... The, it's, it's Jesus. And, and they were not expecting that Jesus would be this one who's going to die. They expected the blood that would be shed would be the other people. Because this Messiah is going to come in on a horse and he's going he's to kill them all. Palm Sunday was the day leading up to Passover where Jesus' friends and followers were lifting him up as the Messiah. Sort of. It was the expectation of the Messiah they thought he would be. They were expecting this mighty warrior who's going to take out Rome politically. He was one who would bring peace, but not by laying down his life like we know, but by destruction. Something happened about two centuries prior with this group called the Maccabeans, and really fascinating, so they just really assumed that Jesus would, well, not Jesus, but the Messiah would be one who'd come similarly. And at one point, um, as a point of context in this, right before woman uh, Mary does the perfume, Jesus had been with his buddy Lazarus, Lazarus and his family because Lazarus died. And so he brought him back to life. Like you do. Says, uh, and, and as a result, people believed him. Therefore, many of the Jews, John chapter 11, 45, who had come to visit Mary, basically to help her grieve, and they saw what Jesus did, they believed him. Now, there's two groups in the, in the old, well, really in New Testament times. They're religious groups. One, you got the Sadducees, and they're kind of like the high priests. The, they do not believe in an afterlife. And then you've got the Pharisees, and they believe in an afterlife, but they do not believe in bodily resurrection. Well, man, this totally messes with them. People are coming to believe Jesus because somebody resurrected. You're thinking about afterlife, and it's over. Sadducees are all upset. And this guy's literally rose with his body. Pharisees are all upset. So what do, you, what do they do? They plot to kill him. <laughs> what? He brought this guy back from the dead. And they're like, oh, we got to kill this guy. Why? Because they don't want people following him as the Messiah. Because they don't think he is. They don't want this walking testimony alive pointing to Jesus. Because that would really mess up their... Really, their own expectations. So, quick recap of what happens before what our text says. is Number one, Lazarus dies. Number two, Jesus comforts his family and friends. Number three, Jesus resurrects Lazarus. Number four, Jewish leaders plot to kill G Jesus. Number five, Jesus then goes into hiding, it says. It says he actually, ah, he's, you know, this is like six days before Passover, I think they say. Or seven, something like that, real close to it. And the people wonder, number six, if he's going to even come. They think he's not even going to show up to the Passover. That'd be a big deal. Mary then anoints him, and we have our text. And it says, the next day, John 12, 
The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and they went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, which means the one who saves, Savior, save, 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 just as it was sung here. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. And the text there has in quotes because those quotes indicate it was actually from the Old Testament, these things. Now, I don't think they're necessarily putting this together at the time. Maybe they were. Zechariah 9.9, that passage. I don't know. We also know that John is writing back, like, he's already experienced this, right? So he's kind of putting, putting the story back together. And so he already has the end in mind like we do. But in putting ourselves there, they're going, oh, wow, yeah, Savior, he's going to save us. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it's written. Don't be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand this. That's key. At first, they didn't get it. They didn't get it. Why? Because their expectations were different. They assumed something else. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize these things have been written about him. How is Jesus glorified? When we glorify something, we lift it up. That's exactly how Jesus was glorified. He was lifted up on a cross. Wow. That's not how you lift up by killing. That's how he was lifted up. His glory was on the cross. See, they didn't realize it until he was glorified. Verse 17, now the crowd was with him. When he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he performed this sign. So they were, ooh, he performed this sign. What was the sign? Bringing Lazarus back to life. They're like, ooh. So they hear this sign, they go out to meet him. It's like, hey, let's go look at the magician. Right? Hey, look at the street performer. He brings people back from the dead. What else does he do? Turn water into wine. Then they're done that. So the Pharisees say to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. This guy's no good for us. Let, look how the whole world has gone after him. You know, digital outreach, that's exactly what this is. The whole world has come. A few chapters later in John 17, you got Jesus praying who? For the people who will come to know Jesus through them. Whoa, this was the problem. We got Pharisees, we got Sadducees, now we got the whole world. If you look at the very next verse, it's even crazier. We'll get there in a sec. So there's three things I want to highlight here. Three assumptions and expectations that I, I learned from this. Number one is what? What? Number two is who? Number three is how? Now, I think the what is like what happens in the event? The who is, who's the audience? Who's all involved in the story? And then the, the third is, is really the external influences. Now, this could be about the text, but it could also be about your life. What's the situation you're in right now? Where you're going, what is going on? And, and who all is involved? There's probably somebody you don't know who's involved. <laughs> and then how? Oftentimes people will be like, how, how is this situation going to work out? Is there, maybe positivity will solve it. Maybe it will root for good energy. 
We as Christ followers believe God is here. He's moving in every situation and we can rely on him. There are external forces at hand. I think many recognize that. But when we see God moving, that's a big part of the how. And so assumption number one, and I'm going to use a, a, a trial, literally in some cases, um, of my life over the last two years, kind of highlight this. And I want you to see your own life in that. The first was this familiarity with the events. Passover, we assume, we assume, was for all these people who are super holy. Now, I don't know what image you have of Palm Sunday, but I, I, I would guess it might be a little different than what it is. I'm assuming that. I know mine. I, I have an image, but I don't really know um, just what it is. I mean, I assume all these people were holy. Like, oh, they're all dressed up. They're ready to go to the temple. There's like, you know, a big crowd of them. I kind of pictured it like a, like a small town parade that Jesus gets on this donkey and he's just kind of riding through. Did you know the historian Josephus in the late 60s AD reports 2.2 million people descended to Jerusalem for the Passover? Million people. They estimate most scholars that there were a million people descending on Jerusalem. Now I would say traffic had them in bed, but there was probably a lot of cults, a lot of donkeys, a lot of horses there. So Jesus riding on a, on a little donkey? Probably not uncommon to everything else that's going on with a million people descending on this land. Is your assumption getting twisted a little bit? The picture changing a little bit? Roman guards, their philosophy was Pax Romana, keep the peace, peace of Rome. We just don't want to upset, upset the apple cart. Now, I don't know about you, but I was with one million guys one time. Here's a picture of it. I was with a million guys on October 4th, 1997 in Washington, D.C. at Stand in the Gap. You might be able to see me there in the red circle. I don't know. You in the back? Ah, tough. You definitely can't see me. A million people. It was crazy. And there were little groups of guys from churches, and, and, and they would, they'd start this ruckus. They would be like, whoa, you know, maybe they were playing cards or something because there was a lot of dead time. Where they're playing, you know, uh, cornhole, and, and, and they would go like, oh, and like everybody would kind of look. Like, oh, that's kind of a cool thing. If there's a million people, do you know how, how in the world would you get the attention of everyone without, I mean, there had to be hundreds of speakers there in the Smithsonian Mall. Hundreds of speakers, like speakers, like these things that are, you know, and, 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 and big screens. And, and it was crazy. And I'm like, how did they do this? So if Jesus really got the attention of all million people, it didn't happen. Let me just be honest. It did not happen. It wasn't like everybody's looking at Jesus on the donkey. That wasn't the case. But it may have been a big deal where everybody's looking at the guy doing cornhole. They're like, oh, we're waving palm branches because Jesus is in. Now, obviously, the Pharisees and Sadducees had kind of their eye on this guy. But the Roman soldiers didn't think it was that big of a deal because there's so many people. One of my profs in seminary, uh, Daryl Box, said that he, he kind of likened it to maybe a tailgate party. <laughs> At, you know, in a parking lot or something like that. And I don't tell you this to just kind of mess up your whole theology. It's just understanding that sometimes our assumptions of a story is a little bit off. Did I mess with anybody? Yeah, he messed with me too. 
There was a good-sized group around him, but the image might not have been what we assumed. <clears throat> so what happened? An expectation of what happened, which we call assumptions. What is happening and what will happen is where we all struggle, right? Today, when you go home, you have an expectation. And for those of you who are married, your spouse is a different one. But what's going to happen, right? Oh, we're going to go here. Or, oh, wait, no, they thought I was going to go, oh, wait. Uh, this is good. <laughs> Anybody been married longer than a minute knows that expectations and, and spouses is like, well, yeah, you're all laughing. You know what I mean? And, and those of you who expected to be married by whatever age you are and you're not, there's an expectation and assumption there that just hurts. Nobody expects or assumes that some spouse will be unfaithful. Nobody expects their child to go to the places that maybe they've gone. We assume different things. A lot of us go to a food establishment to eat and we order something and we expect to get what we ordered. Darn it. This can lead to entitlement, demands. I paid for this. I better get it. Yeah, Jesus paid for your sins. You get it? Justice, fairness, rights. Man, we think it's ours. We deserve it. No, it's not. Grace is the antithesis of rights. Grace is the antithesis of justice. Because justice means we all pay for our own sins. And last time I checked, everybody sins. Over the last two years, we hosted four uh, little foster kids in our home. Uh, for, we had two of them almost two years. We knew, this, we, we knew there was an, a chance they would go home, right? And we kind of assumed that 50% of all foster cases, they go home. And that's good. Families should get that. But over the last two years, knowing the biological parents, bio parents, didn't pay rent, failed drug tests, lost jobs, were recommended by the county to lose the rights, had poor decisions. It looked like we were adopting these two boys. You can see where this is going, but less than two weeks ago, after a trial that lasted over a week, the judge ordered our two boys to go live with their biological parents. What I assumed was that the lawyers would not have slurred speech. I assumed they would know what they were doing. I assumed they would ask questions based on those things I just said, but they asked zero. As trial went on, my wife and I expected them to go home, which was hard to take, but at least we had that expectation. The most dramatic part was when they told us, when they made the ruling that they go home to bio parents, we had less than 48 hours to pack them up and send them home after two years, and we're not to have any contact with them for at least six months. It hurts. It really hurts. Um, you know, Anne was showing me pictures of Turkey, and I'm just shaking my head like, holy cow, my pain is nothing. And yet it hurts. It really hurts. What I'm proud to say is instead of, uh, well, a lot of foster kids go home like this. Take a look at this next, uh, next picture. A lot of foster kids go home with a garbage bag of stuff. This next picture shows they went home, our boys, with 19 boxes and four giant tubs of stuff. Praise God. 
and my attic is now a whole lot cleaner. And we have a whole new room that doesn't have a lot of stuff in it, which is nice. You know, I expected to be emotionally hurt, and then it would just be whatever. I expected them to finish out their school year. In less than a week, the parents pulled them from their only support system of friends they've had for a time, and they have nothing. And they're not even enrolled in a new one. We found out through the grapevine. This has been more challenging, maybe as challenging as anything else in my life. And I've had a few challenges. Neck surgery, house fire, went to a mental hospital, watched my brother die tragically from mouse feces. Like what? Hantavirus. I've been through junk, but this is, this is unique. And there's no framework for it. There's no expectation. There's no assumptions. Like, I don't know. I mean, it, it's driving me nuts. <laughs> I, I outlined a 17-chapter book already in the last three weeks called Someone Please Call CPS on CPS. <laughs> it's a niche audience, but anyway. The second assumption is who, right? There was a significant familiarity with the audience that we have in the story with Jesus. Some of us assume we know who they were. We assume we know the Sadducees. We assume we know the Pharisees. But there's others that are maybe more or less involved than we realize. These followers of Jesus I mentioned, the Roman guards I mentioned. And then it's really funny because the verse after the one we have at hand with our text, it says, now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. Here's what that means. There's a whole other crowd that we didn't even get to that comes into play. And these people who aren't Jews and they're following Jesus and upsetting the apple cart. Like, imagine a bunch of uh, folks who are maybe Muslim decided to join in Christmas service. What, what do you mean? You're not Christian, you can't work. Well, some of us are going, yeah, great, come join, let's, let's hear. But from a religious, cultural standpoint, like, you don't do that. You don't go crossing into somebody else's stuff. But Jesus was about the whole world and opening up to the whole world. Now, I think there was a bunch of looky-loos, if you will, those people who were wanting to see the magic trick in verse 20. A miracle just performed, so they're looking for the magic show. But a lot of us are looking for the same. We want to see the magic. Jesus, I'm going to rub this lamp. I want to see Jesus, you know, do what I need him to do right now. And that's why I'm going to go to church, because maybe somehow some, like, karma something will come back to me, and I'm doing good, so it'll come. No! We just need to see Jesus for who Jesus is. See, our audience is in your home, you have expectations of people. In your communities, you have expectations of people. In your, it's your, at the store, at your work, you see different races. You see different professionals. And you have an idea of who deserves what. What I deserve, what they deserve. In foster care, I did not know how many players would be involved. Therapists, school support, social workers, lawyers, so many people. I mean, I don't know how closely we would need to work with the bio parents. I didn't realize how much we are going to have to work with them. That was really hard. I didn't like it, but it came with the territory, and I, I, I knew. The cool thing is, one of our foster girls we lost about a year and a half ago, and she's uh, she sent us a little video text this week. It was so cool. We're like, oh, you're adorable. 
And uh, it's because we had a relationship with mom. She lives in Nebraska, but she still keeps up with it. I mean, that's kind of cool, right? I mean, it, it, it's, we assume we never see her again. My wife flew her to Nebraska to drop her with her, her dad. It was bizarre. And yet, here we have contact with her. So cool. The third one and last one is how. I didn't think his glory would be on the cross, but it was. Remember, it said at first the disciples did not understand all this. They thought it would be political. And I think we too live with underlying assumptions that just aren't biblical. I mentioned karma. I mentioned, you know, what goes around comes around. Uh, God's going to work it out for good. There will be a romantic or happy ending. I don't know if you realize, but Disney is not real life. It's not. Um, clinically, I think they try and, you know, have these things. And if I look at the situations in my life, I'm like, oh, I want it to end this way. I call it romanticism. Like, I romanticize these ideas in my head. Like, my sister-in-law, my brother dies. Like, oh, she's going to find this guy and this guy. And I'm going to have the opportunity as a pastor to marry them. And I'm going to love him. And instead, she got married in 17 months. And I told her, what the heck are you doing? That was not romantic on a number of levels. But God's been faithful. And it wasn't my plan. It wasn't the assumption I had or the expectation I had, but God is working in it. And what might be good for her might not be good for me. That's okay. It might not be what you think it should be. You know, it's amazing. I, I've, been, um, I've been working... Yeah, I like to memorize scripture. Kind of geeky, I realize. But I've been looking at Hebrews 1, and I'm up to 13, or 11, excuse me. Hebrews 11, 1, and I'm at 13. And it says all these, it's like a hall of faith people. You know, Enoch, you got uh, Abel, you got Abraham, and Moses, and Noah. Uh, not Moses, sorry, Noah. And it says this. It says all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They didn't receive it. And they only saw it and welcomed it from a distance. Right. And then it says, it's so weird, you're like, oh. And then it says, admitting that they were aliens, or excuse me, foreigners and strangers on earth. Y'all, you're foreigners and strangers. It's not going to work out how you think it's going to work out. Whatever it is. Now, I'm not saying that as some guy who's depressed. I mean, maybe I'm transferring. I don't know. But I think the reality is we have to love God and praise God and sing songs and say Hosanna in the rain and in the sun. Sometimes we think um, good is comfort or ease. But I want to say sometimes it's challenging. And it's suffering. I used to speak to inmates all the time. I would say, look, the Christian life does not mean your life is going to be easier. But I do think in some weird way it's going to be better, even if it's harder. Not easier, but our perspective changes. I'll be honest, my life is so much easier right now. <laughs> it's so much easier. There's quiet in the house. And it's weird. You know, you have two, five, six, seven-year-old boys running around the house. Man, it is not quiet, let me tell you. And yet, life hurts. And it doesn't hurt because I miss them. I know that sounds sick. It hurts more because I know where they're living. And I know the situation they're living. And I know who they're living with. 
And I don't know. I mean, they could come back this afternoon. We could get a call from CPS. I have no idea. Right? We don't know expectations. I, I don't assume anything. I assume, actually, no, I do. I assume they're not coming back. I'm going to assume we don't have communication with them ever again. But I don't know. I don't know. They came to us because one of the kids in their house died. So maybe that could be why I'm a little frustrated. That happens. There are four, let me break this down. There are over 600,000 foster kids in the United States of America in a year that cycle through. 400,000 at any one time. There are up to 80,000 foster kids in California a year that cycle through. There are 4,000 kids in Sacramento County. I feel like we've done nothing with the four we touched. I don't recommend this to anybody. We're not going to do it again. It's, it's just, you know, we just, we want to keep our home open for the boys in case they come back. But it's hard. It is hard. That is not the expectation I had when we went into this. I mean, I knew it would be hard, but it's way harder. I apologize to my kids. I said, guys, I, if I knew it was going to hurt this bad for you and for me, I would never have done this. I am sorry. And I remember saying, you know, we just want our parents back. That's what my teens told me. We just want our parents back. And yet we're all crying. We're sitting on the couch that is completely broken because the springs are going up into our tailbone because two little boys jumped on it over and again. And we said, no! We're bawling, the five of us. And my wife said, let's go get a couch. <laughs> so that's what we did right after they left. That was pretty beautiful. Pastor Mark always said to hold things loosely. Hold it loosely. Don't hold it too tightly. He always said this. And, and I don't, I think while there's some things, times we can say we have assumptions, excuse me, sometimes we can say we don't have any assumptions. We have no expectations on the situation. When things turn out the way we didn't think we expected, we realize we had a lot of assumptions. Yeah. And we had a lot of expectations. And we have to be super careful how we manage those. And so I'm going to ask you to do three things in response to this. Number one, I want you to check your assumptions. I want you to check your assumptions and expectations to see if they're in line with the Word of God. Check your assumptions and expectations to see if they're in line with the Word of God. Number two, I want you to communicate them so that you can tweak them or unify them. I think we get into a lot of trouble with relationships because we don't communicate what our expectations or assumptions are. Yeah, yesterday, I assumed I'd be working on a sermon. Others had different assumptions and expectations for me involved, which included moving my entire house around because after the boys, we're trying to move all the rooms around so we all feel a little bit more like it's different. Otherwise, it's too hard on memories. Yeah, I did not expect that we were going to do that all day yesterday. Communicate your expectations. Number three, I want you to assume one thing and expect another. And I'll leave with this. Assume God is present. Assume God is present. And expect God to continue to show up. Expect Him to continue to show up. When I close in prayer here, do we expect something's going to happen? I don't know. Assume He's there. Expect him to show up. 
communicate all your expectations and assumptions and, and check them. Check them. Are they biblical? Lord, thank you for these folks. Thank you for your word. Thank you for life that teaches lessons that, God, frankly, are hard. And we, we don't love them. We don't like them. But you give them. And you make us more like you because of them. Help us, God, to be obedient in that, to be faithful to you and the rain and the sun and to, and to sharpen one another. For, for us to be able to make the person sitting next to us better and more like you and for us to have that community that tempers expectations and assumptions and allows us, God, to, as a one, love you the way you've called us to, no matter what, no matter what. In Jesus' name, amen. I think we're going to have communion. have a scripture reading have our brother Irvin's going to come up and read our scripture and I want to thank you Wes for again the vulnerability and the transparency of allowing God to use you uh, on this Palm Sunday we'll be praying for you uh, so brother Irvin As we prepare our hearts and minds for communion, this reading comes from the 11th chapter of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, the 23rd to the 34th verse. For I receive from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner would be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. This is the word of the Lord. At this time, we should come up and 
It's a blessing to be able to, again, fellowship and as we celebrate and reflect uh, what our Savior has done, what he did. Um, as we go into this week, I definitely want to encourage you all to come out to our Good Friday service uh, because as we think about Communion today, what took place, right? What took place on, on Good Friday, what took place um, on next Sunday, it's the reason today we're able to, to commune together and celebrate together and reflect. So, ask has everyone been served? And the bread, right, represents the body. It just represents the blood of our Savior that we eat together. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let us bow. Father God, we say thank you. Lord, we say thank you for this Palm Sunday. We thank you for the opportunity just to be. We thank you for your consistent grace, your consistent mercy, your consistent patience. Lord, we say thank you. Lord, we thank you for the sweet sounds of our children. We thank you for protecting Lord, we thank you for everything that you're doing in and through City Church Sacramento. Lord, we thank you for our First Lady. Lord, we thank you for our Pastor. Lord, we thank you for just the body that you've assembled here at what we call City Church Sacramento. 
We thank you for the opportunity to be able to step up in the absence of our pastor. Because you bless us, Father God, and we say thank you. Lord, we ask that you would continue to be with our pastor. And First Lady, that you would heal our pastor from the head of his head, from the crown of his head to the soles of his feet, Father God. That you would be with him. That you would strengthen him. That you would anoint him continue to, to lead us, to lead this flock, and help us, Father God, to play our positions. Help us to do what you have called us to do individually and both collectively, Father God. Lord, we thank you for everything that you're doing. Lord, there's somebody right now who is broken this morning. There's somebody who's hurting right now, Father God. There's somebody who needs you to show up right now, Father God. Lord, and so as the word has gone forth, Father God, we assume that you are who you are. We assume that you are the great I am. That you are the beginning and the end. Lord, and we expect you to move. And not because of us, but because of who you are. Because of your holy attributes because of your righteousness, because of your grace, and because of your mercy, Lord, we expect you to move on this day. Lord, we ask that you would be with us, Father God, as we go into this week. Help us to remember, remember that we are sauce and that we are light. Help us to play our positions that we may go into this dead world, Father God, and be living hope, to be examples. And we know that we're not perfect, but your son is. And Lord, so we hide behind your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for, again, this Palm Sunday. We thank you for our opportunity to love on the community this coming week, Father God. We ask that you would have your way with everything that City Church Sacramento puts its hand to, Father God. That we may resemble, that we may reflect the love, the compassion, the hope of your darling and precious son, Jesus the Christ. So Lord, as we depart from this place, but never from your presence, I ask that you would be with us, Father God, that you would protect us, Father God, that you would heal, Father God, as only you can, Father God. Be with us as only you can, Lord. We thank you, and we expect you to do mighty things, Father God, on the account of your son, Jesus the Christ. Lord, we thank you. We appreciate you. We love you, Father God. We love you, Father God. We love you, Father God. We thank you this morning. We thank you, Father God. We thank you for being a place where people can come and become loved on. We thank you this morning, Father God. We thank you so much. Help us to do what you have called us to do. It is in the mighty name Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Hug somebody. Hug somebody.